is the 28th of January, 1828, in a dimly lit tunnel under the River Thames. Men are hammering away on a large platform as a small group of men below are inspecting the progress. One of the men is Isambard Kingdom Brunel. With him are Collins and Ball. Suddenly, there is a deep rumbling. Can only mean one thing. Before they have time to process what's happening, the tunnel is breached by the river above. The torrent of water comes flooding into the tunnel. The roar of water is accompanied by the crashing of a falling platform and the screams of men. Isambard's leg is struck by the platform. This might be the end, he thinks. Struggling, he gets to his feet, calling for Collins and Ball. But it's no good. In the darkness, he can't see them. And if they replied over the sound of the crashing water, he can't hear them. In what feels like a vain struggle, Isambard attempts, with his injured leg, to stumble towards the tunnel shaft. But he's over 600 foot away. He is surely a goner. Without warning, he is swept off his feet by a mighty wave. It knocks him unconscious, but by some sheer miracle, Isambard's limp body is forced through the tunnel by the water to the tunnel shaft, where he is saved. Later, in inspecting the tunnel, Collins and Ball are found crushed by the fallen platform. If he had not made it, the landscape of modern Britain, and indeed the world, would look very different today. Isambard Kingdom Brunel was a British civil engineer who was most famous for masterminding the Great Western Railway, which connects London to the west and southwest of England. But it wasn't just one mega project. Among his other engineering feats were the Thames Tunnel, the first tunnel under the River Thames, the Clifton Suspension Bridge, a bridge spanning 700 foot across the 250 foot deep Avon Gorge, the SS Great Western, the first purpose-built passenger steamship to cross the Atlantic, the SS Great Eastern, the world's largest ship at the time, and so many more that it is truly baffling how one man could have achieved it all. He is widely regarded as one of the greatest engineers of all time, and his contributions to the landscape of modern Britain cannot be understated. In a poll conducted by the BBC about the greatest Britons of all time, Isambard Kingdom Brunel came second, beaten only by Winston Churchill. Hi, I'm Shane Lee, and this is the Enduring Lives podcast, where we explore the lives and enduring legacies of some of the world's most extraordinary people. In this episode, we are exploring the life of Isambard Kingdom Brunel. If you want to find all the previous episodes of the podcast, or if you want to see the show notes with sources for this episode, head over to EnduringLives.com. And if you have five minutes to let us know what you think by leaving a review of the show, wherever you're listening, please do. Really help the show. Join me as we explore the enduring life, Isambard Kingdom Brunel. 
Isambard Kingdom Brunel was born on Saturday the 9th of April 1806 in Britain Street in Portsmouth. His father was a French engineer called Marc Isambard Brunel and his mother was called Sophia Kingdom. Isambard was the youngest child and he had two sisters, Emma and Sophie. When he was born, the family were almost penniless due to the numerous setbacks his father had endured, such as escaping France in 1793. The name Isambard is almost prophetic, as it comes from the old German Isambert, meaning bright or famous iron. And the young Isambard would go on to pioneer with the material, building the first iron-hauled ship, the SS Great Britain. Mark Brunel was an outstanding engineer, who after being Isambard's father, is most famous for his invention of the tunnelling shield, which was an ingenious machine that enabled the safe construction of tunnels. Isambard's father had been born in France, and in 1793 he had escaped the French Revolution and his likely execution for his royalist sympathies. He escaped to New York, and after only three years there, he was appointed Chief Engineer of New York City. After a few years in this position, one evening at a dinner in 1798, Mark Brunel was told about the British Navy, and they were having a problem in procuring pulley blocks for their ships. During the conversation, Mark learned that the Navy required at least 100,000 of these every year and part of their difficulty in procuring the amount they needed was a slow, manual manufacturing process. This dinner conversation would go on to change the course of history. Mark Brunel left it with a problem to be solved, which, if he could solve it, would likely see him become a very wealthy man. Sometime between that dinner and February the next year, Mark Brunel resolved that he would go to England and solve the problem. He had come up with designs for machines that would reduce the manual effort required to manufacture these pulley blocks. And on the 7th of February, 1799, he left New York for good and he boarded a ship bound for fortune in England. He arrived in England in March and immediately set to work on his machines. In November, he married Sophia. It was a few years before they had their first child, Sophie, and a few more before Emma came along in 1804. And finally, in 1806, Isambard was born. When Isambard was born, Mark Brunel had created his machines, and they were very successful. But unfortunately, the Navy was not forthcoming with payment, which is why the family was almost penniless at that point. The year after Isambard was born, 1807, the family moved to 4 Lindsay Row in Chelsea. Mark dedicated time to Isambard's education as a child. He wanted Isambard to become an engineer too, and so he set about teaching Isambard the skills he would need from a young age. Mark taught Isambard how to draw, basic maths and geometry. All would be important skills for Isambard, the engineer. 
In 1814, when Isambard was eight years old, he was sent to a school run by the Reverend Whedon Butler. Mark's early efforts with Isambard clearly paid off, because Isambard displayed an aptitude for numbers and figures. Later that same year, Isambard was sent to a boarding school in Hove, ran by a man called Dr Morrill. This school continued Isambard's mathematical education, but also taught modern languages and Greek and Latin. Sometime in September 1817, Isambard, now 11, briefly was taken out of school and sent to France, where he stayed with Mark's nephew and was introduced to Louis Breguet, who was one of the world's best watchmakers at the time. He returned to Dr Morrill's school in Hove, where he stayed for a few years, until in April 1820 he was sent to France again, this time in order to prepare him for the entrance exam for the École Polytechnique, which was at the time the only science and engineering university in the world. During this time, Marc had arranged that Isambard should stay with Louis Breguet and take lessons from him. The next year, after suffering a number of setbacks in the preceding years, such as his sawmill burning down and his business partner cheating him, Mark's bankers failed, which immediately saw his credit go bad. At the same time, people in debt could be imprisoned, and Mark Brunel was quickly sent to King's Bench Prison. Although not arrested herself, Sophia, Mark's wife, demanded that she go to jail with him, which she did. Isambard continued to be educated in France despite this. It's likely but not confirmed that Louis Breguet paid for Isambard's continued education. In 1822, Isambard took the entrance exam for the École Polytechnique. Over 600 boys took it, and they were competing for fewer than 100 places. Unfortunately, Isambard was not successful. So by late August, now aged 16, Isambard was back in England. Upon arriving back, Isambard started working for his father. By this time, Mark Brunel was already working again on plans to make his fortune, in spite of harsh setbacks. Mark Brunel was nothing if not resilient, a trait that Isambard would later display. In January 1823, an ex-director of the dissolved Thames Archway Company approached Mark Brunel to dig a tunnel under the Thames. The Thames Archway Company had originally been founded in 1805 with the sole intention of digging a tunnel under the Thames. But they had been unsuccessful, and when the company was dissolved, thought it was impossible. The reason the director approached Mark Brunel is that a few years earlier, in 1818, Mark, along with Thomas Cochrane, had patented a design for a tunnelling shield that would dramatically improve tunnelling productivity and safety. Mark was reportedly inspired for the design of his tunnelling shield from observing shipworms, which would bore into the wooden hulls of ships. With this tunnelling shield, boring under a river, might just yet be possible, and the Thames Tunnel Project was back on. 
The Brunels moved from Chelsea to Blackfriars, which was much closer to the site of the Thames Tunnel. The foundation stone for the Thames Tunnel would not be laid for another two years in 1825. In the meantime, Mark and Isambard were working on a number of projects. One of these was the gas engine. In 1823, Mark Brunel attended a lecture by Sir Humphrey Davery at the Royal Society. The lecture was about the liquefaction of gases. The most interesting point of this lecture for Mark Brunel was when Davy talked about the pressure that arose from the gas combining with sulfuric acid and carbonate of ammonia. By increasing the temperature of the vessel in which the two liquids were stored, it was possible, Davy argued, to dramatically increase the pressure exerted on the vessel. In this, Mark Brunel saw a potential engine. Mark and Isambard immediately set to work designing an engine based on the principles of this lecture. The Navy was interested in seeing this engine developed and gave the Brunels £200 towards the cost of development. The Brunels would spend 10 years attempting to make the gas engine work, but they gave up, owing to a number of technical difficulties that arose. On March 2nd, 1825, the foundation stone for the shaft of the Rotherhithe side of the Thames Tunnel was laid. Later in November, the excavation for the tunnel began. A few months later, on the 3rd of January 1826, Isambard was given the title of Resident Engineer of the Thames Tunnel Project and was awarded a salary of £200 a year. This was at a time when the average salary in the UK was closer to £20 a year. The Thames Tunnel Project would be the first major project that Isambard took on, and it was not without significant challenges. The first major incident occurred on the 18th of May 1827, when a hole in the ceiling of the tunnel formed and flooded the tunnel. In order to fix the problem, they had to plug the hole in the riverbed, and then after that, they would have to pump all of the water out of the tunnel. Isambard hired a diving bell to go to the bottom of the river and fix the hole which turned out to be 50 foot wide. To fix it, they filled it with nearly 20,000 cubic yards of bagged clay. This took until the 11th of June to complete. Near the end of June, they turned the pumps on to clear most of the water from the tunnel. When they had cleared enough water to go down into the tunnel again, Isambard was the first to lead an expedition of a few workers down there. They had to take a boat through the still partially flooded tunnel, which for all they knew, could collapse at any moment. Using candles to navigate the way, they made it to the end of the tunnel, where Isambard could inspect the damage and assess if their clay bag solution had worked. It was dangerous work, and Isambard loved it. Toward the end of the year, in October, Isambard was walking in the dark near the shaft of the tunnel when he fell into a water tank that had been left open without its iron lid. His leg was badly injured, but he did not want to go home and rest there in case there was some emergency at the tunnel and he couldn't get there. After several hours in pain, he finally gave in and was taken home in a cab where he stayed 
until the 24th of October. The flooding of the tunnel had raised doubts among the public and the investors of the project. They thought it was not safe and was likely to fail. In order to restore confidence in the project, the directors of the Thames Tunnel decided to hold a banquet in the west arch of the tunnel. This was held on the 10th of November 1827 and was attended by a number of important people, including the Duke of Wellington. On January 2nd, 1828, workers were digging through the tunnel when some of the clay they had put on the riverbed to repair the hole came through. Isambard inspected the problem and decided that there was a weak spot in the tunnel ceiling. His solution was to do nothing but urge the men to tunnel faster, hoping they could get through and build the brick arch under the weak bit before the ceiling collapsed. So the men continued on in spite of the leaking ceiling. A few days later, on the 12th of January, at around 6am in the morning, there was a breach of the tunnel. Isambard and some of the other men were down in the tunnel at the time. They were over 600 foot from the Rotherhide shaft. Water rushed in, plunging the tunnel into a water-filled darkness. Isambard made a break for it, running as fast as he could through the dark to the tunnel shaft, but he was too slow. He was taken by the oncoming wave. Under the water in the dark, Isambard thought his time had come. But by some sheer miracle, Isambard was dragged through the tunnel by the water and up the 42-foot shaft to relative safety. He survived, but others weren't so lucky. Six men died from the accident. Two of the men, Collins and Ball, who Brunel was with at the time of the breach, were later found to have been crushed to death by a collapsed platform. In recalling the event, Brunel seems to have thought that it was a thrilling time rather than a terrifying one, even if it left him with an injured leg and other injuries which led to a lengthened recovery. This accident didn't just nearly see the end of Isambard Kingdom Brunel, but it nearly saw the end of the entire project. The Thames Tunnel Company could not afford this disaster. The tunnel was bricked up, and it was over seven years before the work would begin again, on the 27th of March, 1835. Six months later, in June 1828, Isambard left London for Plymouth and then headed for Clifton in Bristol. Around the time that Brunel arrived in Bristol, a committee had recently been formed to organise the building of a bridge across the nearly 1,000 foot wide Avon Gorge. The committee set up a competition to find the best design for the bridge. Isambard submitted four designs for which he had significant help from his father, Mark Brunel. The committee sought the help of the eminent Scottish engineer, Thomas Telford, to judge the designs from the various entrants, including Isambard. Thomas Telford then decided that 
all the entries were terrible and that he could do better. He had argued that Ithambar's design was impractical as it had a span longer than 600 foot, which Telford said was the maximum length for a suspension bridge. Telford's own proposal was much more impractical. His design included two Gothic towers, which would be not built on either side of the gorge, but would instead be built from the valley floor, some 200 foot below. Isambard openly mocked this design in a letter to the committee. Building two massive 200 foot towers would be far too expensive. The committee didn't make the decision on which design won for two years. In the meantime, Isambard travelled to England's north in search of work. He applied for the role of engineer for the Newcastle and Carlisle Railway in May 1829. Unfortunately for Brunel, he was turned down in favour of Francis Giles. In summer the next year, age 24, Isambard was elected to the Royal Society. In the same year, Isambard found work in the form of a contract to drain the Old Hill Marshes at Tolsbury. The landowner of the Old Hill Marshes, Philip Bennett, commissioned Isambard to construct a siphon which would drain the marshes. Brunel worked with Maudsley and Sons to build the pumping engine for the siphon. The siphon was to be placed over the sea wall to pump water from the marshes into the sea. The outcome of this project is not well documented, but we know that Brunel worked on it on and off for a few years. In January 1831, after a series of bureaucratic changes in the committee following the rejection of Thomas Telford's expensive design, a second competition was held. This time, new judges were appointed, including a man called Davies Gilbert, who was another engineer and, like Brunel, was also a fellow of the Royal Society. Brunel entered the competition again with a revised design. Unfortunately for Brunel, his design was again rejected. The competition was won by Smith and Hawkes of the Eagle Foundry in Birmingham, a firm that would later manufacture the famous red post boxes throughout England. Brunel was not a man to give in without a fight. Brunel arranged a meeting with Davies Gilbert, and during the course of that meeting, persuaded Gilbert that he, Brunel, should be the real winner of the competition. Shortly after that meeting, Brunel was declared the winner and was awarded the contract to complete the bridge. The winning design that Brunel created is the bridge we see to this day. Isambard completed this design independently and chose to ignore his father's advice for the engineering of the bridge. However, Thomas Telford got involved again and insisted that Brunel's design had a span that was too large for a suspension bridge. This led to an amendment to the design, adding a large abutment on the Lee Wood side of the bridge. This added £14,000 to the original £10,000 budget. On the 20th of June 1831, a few months after having been awarded the contract, a ceremony was held 
to lay the foundation stone of the Clifton side of the bridge. Almost immediately following the opening ceremony, the problems with this project started. The first was that the committee in charge of the money for the project realised they didn't have enough money to fund the bridge through to completion. But before they could start raising more capital, in October there were widespread riots in Bristol following the rejection in the House of Lords of the Reform Bill, which aimed to give more power to parts of the country like Bristol. Work stopped while the riots raged, and Isambard was deputised as a special constable. As well as the Clifton Suspension Bridge, 1831 saw Brunel appointed as an engineer to design a new dock at Monkmouthware in Sunderland, which opened six years later in 1837. On the 5th of December 1831, Isambard took his first train ride. He rode on the Liverpool and Manchester Railway. He wasn't impressed. He thought the ride was too shaky and unstable. And he thought he could do better. At the time, trains travelled at around 30 miles an hour and were anything but smooth. After the train ride, he wrote in his diary, the time is not far off when we shall be able to take our coffee and write while going noiselessly and smoothly at 45 miles an hour. Let me try. And try he did. By March 1833, he was appointed engineer to the Bristol Railway Company after submitting his designs. This was the start of the Great Western Railway. On the 27th of August, the Bristol Railway Company changed its name to the Great Western Railway Company. This was to be a mammoth undertaking. The initial plan was to build a railway route from Bristol to London, thereby linking the capital to the southwest of England. In order to achieve both speed and smoothness on this new railway, Brunel had two ideas. The first was to have much larger train wheels. Brunel reasoned that by having larger wheels, the locomotive could be mounted inside the wheels, which would lead to a lower centre of gravity and a faster and smoother ride. The second was controversial to say the least. It was to design the railway to use a broader gauge for the tracks. In this case, Brunel wanted the tracks to be seven foot apart, as opposed to the just over four foot apart of the standard gauge. The idea behind this was the stability and smoothness would be another result from the lower centre of gravity. The broader gauge also meant that railway carriages could be wider, leaving more space inside. Brunel didn't invent the broad gauge, it was already in use in Scotland at the time when he started the Great Western Railway, but his decision to use it shows his independence of thought. He thought that there was no real reason for the enduring popularity of the standard gauge. It was just the default choice following on from Stevenson's rocket. While it was built with the broad gauge, many years after Brunel's death in 1892, the Great Western Railway was converted to the standard gauge, 
To plan the route for the Great Western Railway, Isambard had surveyed the land himself. There would be several challenges along the way that would require Brunel to engineer solutions, such as dips in the land that required new bridges, or land that would require tunnelling through. Speaking of tunnels, the next year, 1834, the government loaned the Thames Tunnel Company £270,000, which allowed Mark Brunel to re-engineer his tunnelling shield and start making preparations to restart the work on the tunnel. In January of 1834, Isambard completed plans for the Great Western Railway, which were due to be submitted to Parliament. Later in July, the House of Lords rejected the first plan for the railway and Isambard had to go back to the drawing board. It wasn't until August of the next year that the attempt to get the plan approved by Parliament succeeded. The final step of something becoming law from Parliament is to receive royal assent. And the act that incorporated the Great Western Railway Company received royal assent from King William IV on the 31st of August, 1835. During this year, Isambard was also appointed as an engineer to a number of other railway companies. In October, at a dinner with the other directors of the Great Western Railway at the Radley's Hotel in Blackfriars in London, Isambard floated his idea of a Great Western steamship that could connect England to New York. Isambard was in need of a larger home and he was courting Mary Elizabeth Horsley and he was planning on marrying her. To that end, he acquired 18 Duke Street in London where he would live and work. The biggest early challenge for Isambard on the Great Western Railway was Box Hill. Box Hill is a large hill between Bath and Chippenham. Isambard could have chosen to have the railway go round this hill, but there were various reasons why that might not have been the best solution. For example, there would have been additional complications and costs from acquiring the extra land required. Isambard was not a man lacking an ambition or vision, and decided to tunnel straight through the hill. His plan meant that the finished tunnel would be over two miles long, and have a gradient of 1 in 100. There was no railway tunnel on the planet this long. In designing this great scheme, Isambard found many critics. Many argued that the tunnel simply wasn't possible. It wasn't that a tunnel of that length was impossible. The Stanage Tunnels and the Sapperton Tunnel were longer tunnels constructed on canals. But the scale of Isambard's plan was deemed to be by some, an impossible impediment. It would be deeper and bigger than other tunnels, and that combined with the length would surely mean it would collapse. In debates about the tunnel in the House of Commons, it was argued that because of the 1 in 100 gradient, if a train's brakes failed, then the train would continue to accelerate until it reached 120 miles an hour, and in the meantime it would suffocate all of the passengers and the crew. Some MPs even argued that should the tunnel be constructed, there wouldn't be any passengers that would want to enter it. While this sounds ridiculous today, 
after the box tunnel was built, there were stories of passengers leaving their train before the box tunnel and then travelling round it to get to the next station. Isambard, however, knew that he and his resident engineer, William Glenny, could build it. The other problem he had with this tunnel before it was even started was finding contractors who were willing to work on digging it. By January 1836, he had found Paxton and Orton, who were willing to start conducting exploratory work to test the feasibility of the project. The trouble was, it wasn't tunnelling through just earth, they were going to be tunnelling through solid rock. It was dangerous work. During the construction of the tunnel, a hundred men died. One fell 200 foot through one of the tunnel shafts. To get through the rock, they had to rely on gunpowder, and they were using a ton a week. It took five years from the first exploratory shafts to the first train passing through the tunnel, which it did on the 30th of June, 1841. After that, work still continued on the classical-style opening facade of the tunnel on the western side, which today is Grade 2 listed. For a while, there was a rumour that Isambard had designed the tunnel so precisely that on every April the 9th, Brunel's birthday, the sun would rise. And because of Brunel's designed alignment, it would shine straight through the tunnel. This rumour may have come about because as in Brunel's time, the great temple of Abu Simul in Egypt was rediscovered, which it is believed was designed to align in such a way that the sun shines through each year on the 22nd of February and the 22nd of October. The theory is still debated to today, as the sun really does shine through the tunnel in early April. Some people have argued that it was actually designed to coincide with Brunel's sister, Emma's birthday, on April the 6th. Despite the numerous problems, objections and challenges throughout this project, Isambard and William Glenny did it, and the tunnel is still in use to this day. 1836 was an extremely busy year for Brunel. During the box tunnel construction, work had also started on the Warncliffe Viaduct in the February. The Warncliffe Viaduct was another of the early challenges for Isambard with the Great Western Railway. It is a 270 metre long multi-arch bridge built over the Brent Valley and River. Today, the viaduct is regarded as historically significant with a Grade 1 listing status. In July, Isambard got married to Mary Horsley, whom he had proposed to back in May. A few weeks after getting married, Isambard was back at the Clifton Suspension Bridge. One of the major problems that Isambard had to solve before this bridge was going to be constructed was how men and materials were going to be transported across the gorge while the bridge was being constructed. Isambard's solution was to install a massive iron bar, which was around 300 metres long. The bar would be used to attach a basket, called the Suspended Traveller, and that this could then be used to move across the gorge with a series of ropes and pulleys. This wasn't without issue, however. 
on the 23rd of August, when the bar was installed, there was an error which led to it falling into the gorge below. The next day, it had been retrieved and fitted into place. The fall had caused several kinks in the bar, which made crossing difficult. On the 27th of August, there was another ceremony. During this ceremony, Isambard was reportedly the first to cross the bridge. Although he completed the dangerous crossing with difficulty because of the kinks in the bar. Then some days later, and many accounts differ on the details here, there was a man who got stuck in the basket. Some say this was Brunel, and some say someone else. But it's said that Brunel climbed to the basket and unstuck the basket and continued the journey. Some say that as he was the one in the basket, he climbed out of the basket, over the gorge, unstuck the basket, and then carried on. In November, Brunel narrowly evaded death again. Robert Stevenson's North Star, a locomotive designed for the Great Western Railway, was being delivered by a barge on the Thames. Brunel was involved in managing the removal of the train from the barge with a device called a shear legs, which is a lifting device with two legs. During the installation of the shear legs, a safety rope snapped, causing the device to collapse. It fell on a workman, killing him, and only narrowly missed Brunel. On top of all this, Isambard was hatching yet grander plans. He had the idea to expand the Great Western Railway to America. But as mentioned earlier, he wouldn't do this with more railway. He would use a steamship. And it would be called the SS Great Western. Isambard thought that he could design a wooden paddle boat, powered by steam, to cross the Atlantic. The SS Great Western wouldn't be the first to do this. The SS Savannah had already accomplished the feat in 1819. However, the SS Great Western is considered the first transatlantic passenger service powered by steam. Not only that, but at the time of its construction, it was the largest passenger ship in the world at 252 foot long. It beat the previous record that of the SS Royal William, by nearly a hundred foot. The SS Great Western was launched on the 22nd of July 1837, which itself was remarkable because it was only a year previously that the Great Western Steamship Company was formed, with the first public meeting of the company having taken place on the 4th of March 1836. On the 31st of March the next year, during a run from London to Bristol, following successful trials in the Thames, Isambard nearly died again when there was a fire in the engine room of the ship. The captain of the ship, Christopher Claxon, was in the smoke-filled engine room when Isambard attempted to descend the ladder into the room. The ladder, however, was made of wood and was badly damaged in the fire. So during Isambard's descent, he fell around 20 foot. It's believed he would have died if it wasn't for Claxton happening to be at the bottom of the ladder. 
Neither of the men could see each other because of the smoke. But when Isambard fell, he landed on Claxton, which broke his fall. Claxton wasn't badly injured, but Isambard was knocked unconscious, and he landed face first in the water that was in the engine room. He would have drowned if it wasn't for the quick action of Claxton in scrambling through the smoke to Isambard, having hoisted him out of the engine room via a rope. This saw Isambard bedbound for over three weeks, where, in spite of his narrow escape from the clutches of death, he continued to organise and arrange his various projects. Only days after the incident, the SS Great Western set off on its maiden voyage to New York on the 4th of April, 1838. And only a few weeks later, it arrived on the 23rd of April. It was a momentous achievement, and shortly after, on the 31st of May, Isambard had another milestone achievement, with the first train on the Great Western Railway running from Paddington to Maidenhead. A few days later, in June, the first passenger services started to run. Maidenhead presented another challenge for Isambard, namely a crossing of the River Thames. Building a bridge over the particular section of the river wasn't the main challenge, but to build it as flat as possible, with as little rise as possible, was. Because this bridge was intended for the railway, it is ideal not to have to change the elevation of the trains. Isambard's design for this bridge was originally criticised, as it was thought that his design would not be strong enough. Isambard's vision for the bridge was to include two arches that had spans of 128 foot and rises of just over 24 foot, making these some of the flattest and longest arches in the world at the time. The problem was that the arch gets its strength from its shape. To flatten it was to reduce that strength and hence the general disbelief of its possibility. But Isambard proved them all wrong. The bridge was opened in 1839 and has stood strong over 180 years and is now Grade 1 listed. While the design for the Maidenhead Bridge was controversial, Isambard's plan for the gauge on the Great Western Railway was even more so. In January, there was a vote of the Great Western shareholders on the topic of retaining Brunel's broad gauge. The broad gauge was a controversial design choice of Brunel's. It led to the so-called gauge war, which was a long-lived debate about which railway gauge was superior. The wider railway track position of the broad gauge was in contest with the standard gauge, as we have heard. Isambard argued that the broad gauge was superior because it allowed trains to have a lower centre of gravity, and a lower centre of gravity meant that the trains would be more stable, which would allow for faster speeds and would be a smoother ride, and there would be more space in the carriage. The standard gauge had, by the time Brunel started on the Great Western, been adapted in most places. Critics of the broad gauge argued that changing gauges would lead to 
high and unnecessary costs in conversions and would lead to incompatibility across the different railways. In a vote of the shareholders in January on the decision to retain the broad gauge, Brunel won with around 7,000 votes to around 6,000 votes for the standard gauge. Despite this victory, over time and after Brunel's death, the broad gauge was eventually phased out, with the last tracks being converted in the early 1890s. Not content with having the biggest passenger ship in the world, Brunel wanted to go bigger. The SS Great Britain was almost 100 foot longer than the Great Western at 322 foot to 252 foot. Like the SS Great Western, the Great Britain was designed to travel transatlantic. Instead of being mainly made of wood, the SS Great Britain was constructed of iron and featured a screw propeller instead of a paddle wheel. This was the first steam-powered iron ship to cross the Atlantic, and it did it much faster than the already speedy SS Great Western, taking only 14 days on its maiden voyage. In 1843, the Thames Tunnel was finally completed after years of delays. It was mainly Isambard's father who had seen the tunnel through to completion, for which he was knighted in 1841. The tunnel today is a key link in the London Underground, but when it opened, it was for pedestrian traffic only. Isambard, or his father, never saw the tunnel converted for use on the railway, as this happened in the 1860s. One of Isambard's grand ambitions was to install an atmospheric railway on the South Devon Railway. An atmospheric railway is an alternative approach to making trains move. Instead of having an engine on the train, the railway contains a pressurised tube to which the train connects and uses that to move. Pumping stations were located every few miles on the line to pressurise the tube. Isambard didn't invent the idea of the atmospheric railway. He thought that it would be suitable for the South Devon Railway though because it contains steep gradients which Isambard thought could be handled better by the atmospheric railway than a traditional train engine. Isambard had other reasons for proposing this alternative form of propulsion. One of them was he thought that without an engine, the train would be again smoother and it would be quieter for the passengers. Work began on this railway in 1845 and the first atmospheric trains were up and running by 1847. On a good day, they could reach speeds of 70 miles an hour. However, it wasn't long before issues with this design started to emerge, the biggest of which was the result of a mistake of Isambard's making. Isambard had studied another atmospheric railway as inspiration for the Devon one. One of the key design points was the manner in which the train connects to the tube. Brunel took the existing design which had a slit in the tube and a leather flap over that slit and a protective weather seal over that. But either in an omission by choice or simply a missed detail, he did not include the protective weather seal on this flap. Without this weather seal, 
the leather flap would regularly degrade and have to be replaced, leading to additional expense and too much of a maintenance headache. The atmospheric railway in South Devon turned out to be one of the few major blunders of Isambard Kingdom Brunel. In January 1849, there was a shareholder meeting in which votes were cast, which led to the atmospheric railway being abandoned and replaced by steam. Brunel, recognising his own mistake, had himself recommended that the system be abandoned. But this failure did not stop Brunel. It wasn't long before construction started on Paddington Station. Brunel had designed this station with Matthew Digby Watt. Much of the design for the station was inspired by the Crystal Palace, which was constructed for the Great Exhibition in London. The station, which today is an icon of London, like many other of Brunel's designs, has been honoured and protected with a Grade 1 listing. In 1852, Brunel was again thinking of ships. He had started to design a new one. When Isambard built the SS Great Western, it was the biggest ship in the world. And when he built the SS Great Britain, it was the biggest ship in the world. The SS Great Eastern would be no different. Brunel designed it to be 692 foot long, over double the size of the SS Great Britain. And the plan was to have it to sail to Australia without refuelling. But at this point, it was just an idea. In another podcast episode, we cover the life of Florence Nightingale, the lady with the lamp, who was famous for her work as a nurse at Scutari Hospital in the Crimean War. There's a connection between Florence Nightingale and Isambard Kingdom Brunel. One of the biggest problems facing the British in the Crimean War was a lack of hospital beds for the injured and sick soldiers. In early 1855, only a few months after Britain had entered the war, Isambard's brother-in-law, Sir Benjamin Hawes, who worked in the war office, asked him to design a prefabricated hospital, which could be built in one place and then shipped out to Skatari. The hospital was called Renkoy Hospital, and it had over a thousand beds. Brunel set to work designing the hospital using Florence Nightingale's principles for hospital design to guide him. He must have worked with unbelievable speed because by May the same year, only a few months after having been asked, it was there. And by July, it was serving patients. While Isambard wasn't the first to use prefabrication, he is considered a pioneer in its use. He'd used it for Paddington Station. And his use of it for Renkwai Hospital was outstanding. Shortly before Isambard was asked to design a hospital for the Crimean War, Isambard had found the man to help him build the SS Great Eastern. It was John Russell Scott, a shipbuilder he had met at the Great Exhibition. They signed the contract in December 1853, and construction on the mammoth vessel started in 1854. What Isambard didn't know at the time was that John Scott Russell was in a precarious financial position. 
Throughout the project, Isambard and John Scott Russell argued and bickered over many details of the ship, which was originally to be called Leviathan. The letters between the two show a tense relationship. In one, Russell complained about not being paid on time, while Isambard responded by arguing that the weight of the vessel, by Russell's estimations, have gone up by a thousand tonnes compared to the same estimates only a few months ago. There were numerous difficulties on the project, not least of which was that Isambard kept redesigning parts of the ship. Russell's financial difficulties nearly saw the end of the project. In September 1853, there was a fire at Russell's works which caused £150,000 worth of damage, most of which was not covered by insurance. But to make matters worse, in October 1854, Russell's financial backer, Charles Getch, died, and then in May 1855, there was another fire in which Russell lost another 45,000. By 1856, Russell was declared bankrupt, at which point the work on the ship was halted and Russell's creditors took over his business. By May, the work resumed on the ship, with some of the financial issues being worked out, with the Eastern Steam Navigation Company stepping in. On November the 3rd, 1857, the ship was ready to be launched into the Thames. It is believed at this point, the SS Great Western was the heaviest object that had ever been moved by humans, at 12,000 inert tons. Crowds gathered to watch the spectacle. The Eastern Steam Navigation Company had sold 3,000 tickets, although Isambard would have preferred not to have a crowd. And he was right, the launch was a complete disaster. The ship got stuck on its launchways, and one labourer was thrown into the air and then crushed by falling chains. In all, several workers were injured, and two were tragically killed. Finally, in January 1858, the ship was successfully launched into the Thames, where for nearly the next year, the interior of the ship was fitted out. In many ways, the SS Great Eastern was the pinnacle of Isambard Kingdom Brunel's already magnificent career. The most famous photograph of the great engineer is of him stood in front of the enormous launching chains of the Great Eastern. The photo symbolises Victorian ambition and gives an idea of the scale of Brunel's ship. While the SS Great Eastern was an engineering marvel and was undoubtedly a phenomenal achievement, it was, nonetheless, a commercial failure. There were enormous cost overruns on the project, and one of the biggest issues with the ship was its size. While Brunel had envisioned economies of scale with the size of the ship, the size meant that there were few ports in the world at the time that could support it. In addition, some have argued that the financial strain of the ship, Brunel had bet most of his fortune on it, and it was even reported to have pawned some of his wife's jewellery to pay for it, and the strain of the numerous engineering problems contributed to Isambard's rapidly declining health. Certainly the ship is associated with 
Brunel's death. On the 5th of September, 1859, the day that was to be the maiden voyage of the SS Great Eastern, Brunel was photographed for the last time in front of some of the ship's funnels on deck. Moments after this photograph was taken, Brunel collapsed, having suffered a stroke. He was taken home from the ship to his home in Duke Street, where ten days later, on the 15th of September, 1859, Isambard Kingdom Brunel passed away. He was 53 years old. When he died, Isambard Kingdom Brunel left an outstanding legacy. In only 53 years, he had achieved more than many could achieve in many lifetimes. He forever changed the landscape of Britain and is today celebrated as one of the greatest Britons to have ever lived. He achieved so much that it's been impossible to fit all of his projects into this podcast. One of them we didn't get time for was the Royal Albert Bridge, which was completed shortly after the Great Eastern was launched into the Thames. The bridge still stands today, and as you may expect from a Brunelian construction, it has a grade one listing. Shortly after Brunel's death, large metal letters were added to the bridge in Brunel's honour. They read, I.K. Brunel, Engineer, 1859. Today Brunel's legacy continues. There is a university named after him, numerous statues of him, and he was voted one of the greatest Britons ever in a poll by the BBC. But perhaps more importantly, his work is still in use to this day. The Great Western Railway still connects the west of England to London. The Thames Tunnel, which he worked on with his father, was the first successful tunnel under a river, and today is part of the London Underground Network. If you get on the East London Line, on one side of the Thames, and get off on the other side of the Thames, you will have travelled through Brunel's Tunnel. The Clifton Suspension Bridge still stands strong to this day, as does the Maidenhead Bridge, Box Tunnel and Paddington Station, all of which are listed for their historical and architectural significance. Those are just a handful of Isambard's infrastructure projects. His ships were groundbreaking. The SS Great Western was Brunel's first ship, and with typical Brunelian ambition, he made it into the longest ship in the world, and the first purpose-built steam-powered transatlantic passenger service. But that wasn't enough. He then built the SS Great Britain, which again broke the record for the longest ship in the world. Arguably, Brunel's last major project was the SS Great Eastern, which again broke records. It was the biggest ship in the world at the time of its construction. It's no wonder that the legacy of Isambard Kingdom Brunel endures to this day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Enduring Lives podcast. If you want to see the other episodes or see the show notes for this episode, 
go to EnduringLives.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe if you want to get the latest episodes when they're released. I've been your host, Shane Lee. Thanks for listening. Until next time.